Hello everybody. It is the end of my work week, so that means it's time for you to join me on the Homeward Path. This is the show that I record in my vehicle on the way home from work at the end of the work week. And my name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, work a full-time job, and listen, magic's tough. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money, and if you're like me and don't have a lot of either one of those things because other responsibilities come first, then you should probably stay tuned because I'm here to try to show you how I am seeking improvement at Magic under difficult time and financial constraints. But before we get started, I need to remind you that I'm a part of the Constructed Criticism Network of Shows. If you haven't checked out the other content on the network, it is fantastic, and you are doing yourself a disservice by not doing so. Uh, We bid a hopefully temporary farewell to the Arena Mythic cast, but Spencer returns, makes a glorious return to the flagship Constructed Criticism show. Uh, We've got Common Knowledge with Brad and Christian, and we've got... Sam Black, one of the icons, one of the legends of Magic the Gathering, with his insights unlimited. So we've got something for everybody. Out of the group, I'm probably the most casual, and I'm kind of trying to lay into that, embrace that, lean into it a little bit more. But check out the network, and don't forget to check out our sponsors, which I'll read off at the beginning of each segment. Hope everyone's had a good week. I have put together what feels like a pretty good episode for everybody. So let's dive in without any further ado to our first segment, Budget Spotlight, which is brought to you by our sponsor at PureMTGO.com. PureMTGO is one of the largest collections of magic content on the web. They host all of the shows on the Constructed Criticism Network. And whatever we don't have stuff for, they do. And then they also have more stuff for the same stuff we do. So... Go check them out. Check out their sponsor at MTGO Traders. They are my favorite vendor to do business with for Magic Online. Buy a lot. It's not particularly close. And just go check it out. You're going to fill your head with knowledge and keep your wallet from running empty. So with that in mind, let's dive into Budget Spotlight, where we highlight an uncommon, a rare, a mythic, and a commander-oriented card that maybe aren't seeing as much play as I think they should or are worth a little bit more money in the long term than I think they are right now. First on the docket is Dragon's Rage Channeler, and if you've been playing Modern for the last two months, you know everything there is to know about this card. But if you haven't, it's uh, for Modern Horizons 2. It is an uncommon for a red 1-1. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, surveil 1. So, That's already really powerful. That's already really good. And then with Delirium, it gets plus two, plus two, flying, and attacks each turn of Able. So this thing just, like, flat-out replaces Delver of Secrets and all the red-splashed Delver-style decks, right? Because this is a 3-3 instead of a 3-2... And you don't have to specifically play a ton of instants and sorceries. You just got to play a bunch of different card types, which is way more in line with what these kinds of decks want to do. Cards like Mishra's Bobble 
just kind of fit what you want to do. So the response, the only thing to say about Dragon's Rage Channeler from a, a power level ceiling and like where it serves in modern is Delver of what now? Because, I mean, this thing is easier to set up and gets bigger and enables itself. It's both an enabler and efficient delirium payoff. You know, I can't tell you how many times I tried to make the card, the card Narwood Dryad work. And this is just a better Narwood Dryad because it gets flying and it can get itself turned on with that surveillability. Just all around fantastic card. And I know it's $5 and I don't like to go around that budget on the uncommon side, but it's worth it. If you're willing to pay $3 for Lightning Bolt, you can bet you better be willing to pay three, uh, $5 for one of Lightning Bolt's best running mates in modern. Moving on to the cheaper side of things, our rare is Grazalax Illithid Scholar. Grazalax is one blue-blue for a legendary creature, Horror. 3-2. Whenever a creature you control becomes blocked, you can return that creature to your hand. And whenever one or more creatures deals combat damage to an opponent, draw a card. Now, Grazalax is an 85 cent rare. It's not exactly at the top of the heap from the price perspective, which is why I felt like we could get away with uh, putting Dragon's Rage Channelers or Uncommon. But basically, this is a card that I'm looking at with an eye for Standard and Commander. Grazalax is the signpost if there's gonna be a blue creature deck you're probably going to play this card in it. And I don't mean a Delver deck. I know we got a Delver reprint. Believe me, if anybody is aware that Delver of Secrets is about to be in standard, it's the guy who's been playing Delver and Pauper for five years. I promise, I am well aware, and I am beyond excited. But if there's a creature-focused blue deck, this thing is going to be a part of it because you can pick up your evasive, your non-evasive creatures if they decide to block them keep them safe from being killed, to keep them safe from your own board wipes if you're playing them. Just, that's really good. It also fits great in commander shells alongside cards like Yuriko, ninjas in general, because you can pick up the blocked attackers in order to redeploy them. Uh, you can pick up the ninjas in order to bounce the unblocked attackers and reproc your ninja abilities and then recast your... It, it's just fantastic. It also plays well with a card like Sick River Cutthroat that wants you to generate small amounts of damage every turn. This thing allows you to bounce a blocked attacker, pick up and re-ninjutsu uh, re in a three-power ninja, or bounce a blocked attacker with like a... Uh, What's the, what's the ability? I can't remember the ability. The, the, whatever the ability was for Gruul in Return to Ravnica. You pick up a blocked attacker in order to use it to proc a plus three, you know, to, to discard it and use the ability. I can't remember the name of the ability now. But you, you can discard it from your hand to get a spell effect, essentially. Just all the way around, if your deck is interested in attacking and connecting to, get, to generate abilities, this card's pretty good because it adds you another ability 
and a way to ensure that your creatures don't die in combat. So, all the way around, just really not a bad deal at 3 mana and 85 cents. Moving on to our mythic rare, we have Grandmaster of Flowers. Grandmaster of Flowers is 4 mana, I believe it's 4 loyalty, I've made the mistake of not writing the starting loyalty down on my paper. It's either 4 or 5 loyalty, probably 4. But uh, has a static ability where if this Planeswalker has 7 or more loyalty on it, it becomes a 7-7 flying dragon god with indestructible. Because, fun fact, the type line on Grandmaster of Flowers is not Legendary Planeswalker Grandmaster, Legendary Planeswalker... No, it's Legendary Planeswalker Bahamut. Because D&D stuff, it's just cool. But you have two plus ones, and that always gets me interested when you got a four-mana Planeswalker with two plus ones. Just kind of callbacks to Elspeth Knight Errant, even though... Nothing has ever quite gotten to that level yet. I, I still want to try. Uh, what is that? Uh, plus one. What is that? I don't remember. So the first plus one lets you go get Monk of the Open Hand from your library and put it onto the battlefield. Or maybe it's the second plus one. It doesn't really matter. They're both pretty strong. I've made my stance clear on Monk of the Open Hand. I think it's one of the best one-drops in the new standard. We should probably be playing more of them. Uh, the other plus one is up to one target creature with uh, without first strike, double strike, or vigilance. Cannot attack or block or activate abilities until the end of your next turn. I wrote it weird on my notes, so I had to pause for a second and decipher what in the world I was talking about in these cards' abilities. Because I do this to myself, everybody. I do this to myself. And then... Yeah. So, 7 plus loyalty... Becomes... A, it, it, it Instead of building to an ultimate where... You have to spend loyalty for it to become a creature. It just is a creature as long as it has a bunch of loyalty. And if it's indestructible, it doesn't matter if the loyalty falls off until, obviously, you get down below 7, and then it's not a dragon god anymore. But... The ability to go get threats out of your deck is a little bit reminiscent of Nyssa Ravain. Obviously not as good as going... Well, I guess... It's about the same as going to get an Elvish Warrior. Because on balance, Monk of the Open Hand, you're going to go get one, cast two spells, it's a 2-2. Two -two, and when Nyssa would go get Nyssa's Chosen, it was a 2-mana two 2-3. Two so, like on rate, it's not better, but it's, it's about the same. It's pretty good. And then the ability to shut off a creature from attacking or blocking. It feels weak until it's not. Until you use it and it matters. Right? So, it's slightly worse than Gideon Ally of Zendikar. And as a four-mana white planeswalker, like, it's in that sort of archetype in the sense that you are playing more creatures, you have an out to an opposing creature, and eventually this thing's going to 
get up and get in on the action of bashing your opponent's face in. So, uh, worse Gideon Alloy of Zendikar is a pretty, still a pretty high bar. It just kind of fits the whole white mid-range Planeswalker archetype pretty perfectly. Neutralizing opposing threats before joining in the fun to hurry up and close out the game. I mean, seven doesn't feel like a lot until you're at eight. And it goes and gets you another one. Like, it can just get you there. And all that for the low, low price of $5 as your white mythic curve-topping Planeswalker. It's just really not bad. Especially in the sense that, like, a white aggro deck that doesn't have a lot of good curve-toppers. And you want to get the Monk of the Open Hands out of your deck in order to keep drawing other gas that's better later. Like, this thins the Monks out of your deck so you don't draw them, you don't top-deck them. This becomes a large creature later in the game and this also neutralizes things like opposing Goldspan Dragons, Inferno of Star Mounts. I mean, it's just good. And last but not least, we have our commander card, Blasphemous Act. Blasphemous Act is, I believe, eight in a red or nine in a red. I think it's eight in a red. Costs one less to cast for each creature on the battlefield. So when you're playing this in Commander, it's probably going to cost you one one to two mana on, on average. And it deals 13 damage to each creature. My first note here says, for when you really, really want to kill everything that isn't indestructible or otherwise immune to damage, you just, just get all of it out of here. All the creatures are dead. This might as well be one mana wrath, and then we got two mana wrath in this next set. We'll probably end up covering that card later. But 13 damage to everything is a lot, in case nobody knew. Uh, just top to bottom, it's, it's strong. It also has a surprising amount of synergy with a surprising number of cards. It's way better than it gets credit for in that regard. You've got cards like Boros Reckoner, which will take 13 damage and then deal 13 damage to another target. Stuffy Doll, which is indestructible, so it won't die, but it will deal 13 damage to the player it's targeting. Uh, True Fire Captain, which is similar to Boros Reckoner, except it only hits players. Uh, Stormwind, Stormwind Caprador, which will get plus one, plus one counters instead of taking damage, so it just becomes a 14, a 14, 17, or a 14, 16. Flying. Uh, Firesong and Sunspeaker and Soulfire Grandmaster with the ability to give it lifelink in order to gain absolutely ridiculous amounts of life. Which, in turn, could, you know, help you win the game with something like Test of Endurance or uh, Felidar Sovereign. All the way around, pretty reasonable amount of synergy for a card that just, at first glance, says kill everything. All of that in one $2.50 package. Thank you, Commander Reprints. This thing's really good. So moving on, we have our Brew of the Week, and full disclosure for Brew of the Week, this is a deck that I am playing right now, trying to tune uh, in advance of post-rotation standard. 
playing it in the standard 2020 blah, 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 standard 2022 queue. It's a hard word to get out of my mouth, apparently. And it is right now. It is exactly fine, and I am trying to tune the core concept to make it better. But Brewer of the Week is where we are looking at a deck that I feel like either doesn't see enough play to justify, like, there's there's something in the format that it's trying to take advantage of, or it's just a really cheap entry point into a format that has uh, implications for other formats. Next week's is going to be better. I've already started working on it, but this week's is still kind of fun if you, you know, hate your opponent's. Uh, the deck for this week is Blue Red Mill for Standard 2022, and I'm sure you have come up against this in the, one, the best of one queue and randomly lost to it and been like, <sighs> the core concept is to chip away at your opponent's library with cards like Ruined Crab and Maddening Cacophony and or Seagate Stormcaller copying Maddening Cacophony. And then you finish with Tasha's Hideous Laughter, copied by either or both of Dual Strike and Teach by Example. Tasha's Hideous Laughter is a three-mana spell. Each opponent exiles cards from the top of their library until they exile 20 total mana value of cards. Like, that can be a whole lot of cards, depending on what you're playing against. Permission and burn spells, in the sense of the blue-red list, allow you to survive long enough to maximize the power level of the quote-unquote combo, which is really just Tasha's plus one to two copy effects, depending on what your opponents play. From a customization standpoint, the question you have to ask is, are you built like a burn deck, or are you trying to be a control deck with a pseudo-combo finish? That is the real long and short of the, the question you should ask on a customization standpoint. Because, quite frankly, if we're trying to be a burn deck, I don't think we're good enough. Although I could, I'm very much open to being wrong because my results with the deck thus far have been very up and down. I will, it very much hinges on what my opponent's playing and just kind of what cards I hit. It is outside my control, it feels very much like a sort of reverse Tybalt's Trickery deck, where instead of being at the mercy of the cards in my library, I'm at the mercy in the cards of the opponent's library. Which is fine, but obviously it has its difficulties. Second question is how much learning can we reasonably do? Uh, cards like Divide by Zero is really good. I love Divide by Zero in the upcoming standard format. It feels very much like a three-mana remand that just so happens to be able to hit stuff in play. And I love... Anybody who's ever talked to me about Magic for very long and we talk about the history of the game, you know I love me a good remand. What are we trying to beat in game one? That's another really important question. If we're trying to beat creatures or small creatures then we need to play a bunch of burn spells and crush the weaks and, you know, thundering rebukes and things of that nature in order to keep from getting our face ripped off. And Tasha's plus one copy might be enough as long as we get a couple of good ruined crab jabs in there. 
maybe one shot from a, a cacophony plus a copy effect. As far as the consistency element of the deck goes, are we planning to play more cantrips in order to dig through more cards and find the right ones? Or are we trying to play card draw in order to better facilitate the controlling aspect of the deck in which if we don't set up the combo or don't mill them out, the only realistic way we have of winning the game is through cards like Den of the Bugbear or uh, Hall of the Storm Giants, which are reasonable win conditions. Do not let anyone tell you otherwise, but they are not as good as just resolving what feels like a Splinter Twin combo sometimes. So all in all, the deck wants to operate in a space where you're, you're threatening more reactive decks with the combo, but you've got the ability to generate pressure with cards like Ruin Crab and Cacophony. And then you've also got the prospect of sideboarding down the line with other cards. So from a strengths and weaknesses standpoint, when you're playing against low-curve decks, you often get to Tasha's and copy like a Splinter Twin as you can grab just an embarrassing number of cards from your opponent. If they're playing mostly one and two drops, similar to the, the way the Luris decks were built, on average, they're going to be playing somewhere in the neighborhood of 22 to 24 lands. And so every land they get offsets every two drop you hit and then every one drop. So you can still hit upwards of 15 to 20 cards with every Tasha's plus copy effect. If not more. And then you'll struggle a little bit versus uh, control or blue mid-range as they can effectively blank your removal spells and that makes life difficult on you because you don't have good removal spells against them, but they have counter spells against you. And in the case of the blue mid-range decks, they can just also be killing you while they are countering your spells. So it's just not an all-around good place to be. As far as the outlook for this deck, early format decks tend to be very pushed to either end of the spectrum. They're either really aggressive or really reactive. Or they're just focused on being piles of powerful cards. You're either pushed to either end or you are solidly right in the middle and just trying to play a giant pile of really good magic cards. This gives a deck like this a window that it can compete in as long as you can take advantage of what they don't interact with. If creatures are the name of the game and your combo is entirely spell-based, Against creature decks, you can keep the board clear and then snipe most of their cards. Whereas against a control deck, they're playing more lands, fewer threats, fewer ways to win the game. So you have the capacity to win the game by virtue of exiling a bunch of cards out of their deck, which in turn will conceivably exile some number of their win conditions, and then you can close up shop that way. It's also got an interesting implication for Eternal. I'm not going to say I wholeheartedly endorse it. But it's interesting as you go into go further down the rabbit hole into Eternal formats. And you end up with decks that are way lower on average on the mana curve. 
So Tasha's plus copy effect will more routinely hit 30 to 35 cards in a shot. And bear in mind, that is the end of Brew of the Week. I forgot to do it at the beginning, so we'll do it here at the end. Remember, Brew of the Week is sponsored by Gray Viking Games, our affiliate. The link for the affiliate program is down in the description below, whether you're on YouTube or watching this on Constructed Criticism. If you are part of the Facebook group and you're watching this or listening to this through uh, any of like iTunes or Apple Podcasts or any of the other podcast apps, uh, be sure to check out the pinned comment in, or the pinned post in the Facebook group that has the affiliate link in it. Gray Viking Games is there for arena codes. If you have got, if you need cards on arena, and you don't have gold, but you have a little bit of cash, you can spend exactly a little bit of cash and get your hands on the cards you need for arena. I mean, it's like you can get a pre-release kit for seven bucks. You get seven packs on arena for seven bucks. That's or six packs on arena plus a wild card for seven bucks. It's not terrible. It's not terrible at all. You also get access to all the cosmetics you could ever need. They've got just anything that hasn't expired, they've probably got. So I highly recommend you check them out. Use the affiliate link to let them know we sent you. It helps the show out. Last but not least, we have our main topic. Main topic of the show is brought to you through the contributions from Patreon. This show's always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help me keep doing it, head over to patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. Become a patron. Take advantage of the rewards. At $1 a month, you get access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord. Join the discussion. I try to have a lot more regularly now. We, I dump deck lists in there. I talk, you know, I share thoughts on formats as I'm having them. Just all of it. All the discussion is... The, the, the meat and potatoes discussion, as it were, is happening in that server. At $3 a month, your deck list submitted through the Patron Pathfinders Discord moves to the front of the line for coverage in the Brew of the Week segment, just as a general rule. And then at $5 a month or more, or $5 a month, you get your very own episode after you donate. I'm talking, we write it top to bottom, every segment, based on what you want. So, head over there, patreon.com slash homewardpathmpg, check it out. Become a patron, take advantage of the rewards. It helps me out while I'm trying to help you out. So, diving in, this week I wanted to finally take an opportunity to talk about what little bit of MTG finance I know. I've talked a lot about how I acquire cards, like how I go about acquiring cards, although obviously, in light of the updates from the last couple of weeks, I'm not going to be doing a whole lot of card acquisition for a while. But before I dive headfirst into finance, a disclaimer. I am a Magic player first, creator second, and then any benefits I get from finance serve as a distant third. I do not do MTG finance for a living, so if you are looking for someone to do that, if you are looking for a way to make as much money as possible in a small amount of time and you've got disposable income to burn like I don't, 
There are way better creators for that exact purpose than me. What I'm here to do is try to make magic as much of a free roll as possible. And gradually improve the value of a collection over time. I do not and will not support the types of investor buyouts that are causing massive price inflations on reserve list cards. I don't like that people are doing that, like that investors are jumping in and buying up every copy of Moat or buying up every copy of, uh, I don't know, random reserve list card A. Waiting for the prices to rise because nobody has them and then turning around and dumping them at a massively inflated price. I don't like that at all. That's not the game I want to play. I do, however, support the idea of getting in cheap on a handful of cards and then getting out when their price becomes unsustainably high. And I've talked about that on the show before. The idea that I will get in on a card when it's cheap and it's, you know, the opportunity cost for me is relatively low. Like, what am I giving up to get in on this card? Basically nothing. Okay, we'll get in on it. I really wish I'd done that with expressive iteration, but that's a conversation for another day. But I'll get in on something relatively cheap or a card that I wanted to use, but then we get to a point where a card's price becomes high enough that I don't think using the card or hanging on to the card is going to be worth it in the long run because of things like format constraints and why it's good, why it's expensive, understanding sort of the surrounding swirl of information around the card's price tag. And when it gets to a point where its price tag is higher than the amount of value I think I'll get from holding and or using it, we're getting off of it. And we're going to use that money to bankroll getting more cards to play for the next few years or get into some more different, you know, sort of diversify the portfolio a little bit. With that in mind, let's take a look at some of the hits and misses that I've had over the years playing Magic, and there are numerous of both. Be real clear about that. The first hit that comes to mind is the Scarab God, and this one was very much a, a product of right place, right time, and good fortune more than anything else. I was gifted, I traded into a copy uh, while I was down to visit Brett in South Carolina back in that uh, summer of 2018. Summer 2018, traded into a copy. Came home, we played a, a Hour of Devastation game day. I loaned my friend Jared a deck. He won the thing. And as a thank you in his prize packs, he opened a Scarab God, and I mentioned that I would like to trade for it. And he says, well, here, you loaned me a deck. You got me this prize. Here, have the Scarab God. Okay, cool. I got two of these now. They're really good. And then the time frame I got into the card, its price tag was somewhere around 17 bucks. And it was something it was a card that I was like interested in building in Commander, and then I liked the way it worked in the control decks in standard. I liked the way you could splash it into the energy mid-range deck. I liked just all the way around, I thought the card was really, really, really good. So I played it a lot. But then it got up to a point where the price tag was sitting at about 50 bucks a piece. 
after uh, Kaladesh and Amon, or uh, not Kaladesh and Amon, after uh, Battle for Zendikar and I guess it would have been 2017 summer and then 2018 gameplay. Uh, but after Battle for Zendikar and Shadows Over Innistrad blocks dropped off of standard and we were left with Kaladesh forward the Scarab God became pretty strongly the best creature in standard but it was definitely one of those creatures that the more I looked at it I'm like this thing's only good in standard and commander so at 50 bucks I play standard tournaments at my LGS maybe once a month maybe twice a month if I really push it Two tournaments a month is not going to get me back $100 even if I win every single tournament. That, and I already had the Teamer Energy deck core around it, so we got out. And ultimately, once the other energy cards were banned, it became harder to splash it, and Dominaria came out, and... Uh, the core set eventually dropped. There just was not enough of an incentive to keep that price tag that high, so it dropped. Thankfully. I was ultimately proven correct. I got real I got real fortunate with that one. Uh, Lyra Dawnbringer was a very similar situation. I pre-ordered Lyra's at like $12 because I remembered Baneslayer Angel and how good that card was. And then, lo and behold, I was right. By the time I got them, they had jumped up to $45 a piece. And I'm like, well, I'm an idiot and forgot to pre-order Teferi Hero of Dominaria, which we'll get to in a minute. So I can't build a blue-white control deck anyway, because that thing is already unsustainably high. Let's just get out of it. I'm not going to play it. Like, I'm not going to build a Naya mid-range deck. I don't think it's going to be good enough to justify hanging on to the card. And I don't think it's... Like, I don't think I'm going to win enough using this card to justify hanging on to it. So we, do we dropped it. More recently, we had Sprite Dragon that I got into at, like, the... I think I got into Sprite Dragon at about $2. Right after it dropped. And by the, you know... By the, by the time I started looking at, at dropping the collection down, it had jumped up to about 8 or $9 a piece, which is kind of staggering. The Kaladesh Fastlands are another really good example. I got into every single one of those when they were in Standard, and then I, I did you know some digging, and I ended up unloading some and getting some back and unloading some and getting some back, and I ended up with two sets of uh, Spiral Bluff Canals, Right about the time they spiked with the release of Modern Horizons 2 from the $8 to $9 range to the $25 to $30 range. I have now unloaded all eight copies of Spire Bluff Canal because I am not going to be playing enough magic to justify holding on to that many expensive lands. Sahili Rai was another one that I was fortunate to be proven right on. But it was a card that I looked at and I said, Wizards is going to make a mistake and they're going to print a card that lets you use that ability multiple times in a turn and it's going to be ridiculous. Like, all you need to do is find a way to either blink this 
or copy this or whatever. And I was ultimately proven right with Felidar Guardian. Wilderness Reclamation was another one. I'm like, oh yeah, untapping your lands is really good as a control deck. Turns out I was right. It went from a 99 cent uncommon that was played in the meme uh, Simic Nexus deck to the deck that ended up being too powerful and got a whole bunch of cards banned even though they were all about to rotate in a couple months. But we also have some misses on this list. I'm not just here to toot my own horn. I'm here to give you the whole spiel. I spec'd hard on Voltaic Brawler because I looked at a two-mana potentially 4-3 trample and I was like, I want all of those. So I bought 12. And those 12 Voltaic Brawlers have been unloaded in bulk since then. Uh, I missed on both Teferi Hero of Dominaria because I just underestimated how good five mana Planeswalkers were. I was a stickler for the old model of evaluating Planeswalkers being four mana and under the only good ones. Unless they are cards like Gideon that will close out a game by themselves. And I just wildly underrated how well Teferi could do that. Teferi Time Raveler was another one that I missed out on. I just... I, best way I can describe it is I just apparently did not read that card correctly. Uh, I underrated Oko. I don't really have an excuse for that one. I just, I was with a lot of people who underrated that card. It didn't look powerful until we started playing with it and it was everywhere. And I was like, oh yeah, no, that's really good. Uh, Omnath, Locus of Creation, the newest Omnath. I did not figure that we would be able to sustain four color mana bases in standard but we could Lotus Cobra was also legal I should have known better on the subject of uh, Wilderness Reclamation earlier I underrated Nexus of Fate I underrated the idea of a recyclable extra turn spell that was a mythic box topper so that the supply was really low and the demand was going to be really high I, that, that's 100% on me I overrated Improbable Alliance and the Royal Scions, thinking the cards put together would feed synergy, enough synergy into a blue-red draw-two deck, and it wasn't until cycling came around that Improbable Alliance became good, and Royal Scions never really became good. It was just fine. And last but not least, I missed high on Fires of Invention. I knew the card was good, because free spells are really good, but I'm like, how good could it possibly be if you only get two spells per turn? Never ask that question about free spells. If you're getting free spells, you need to push it and see how, see how good it is. So what have I learned from all of these things? First category is in the category of power cards versus synergy cards. Singularly powerful cards tend to get expensive faster and stay that way longer. And that's something to really keep an eye on. A card that doesn't need any help to be good will generally start off more expensive and stay more expensive than a card that ends up getting the help it needs. Synergy pieces tend to kind of ebb and flow with the popularity of their archetypes. Think about this from the perspective of utilitarian versus specialized. If something is useful in a lot of different places and it's got a low supply, it is going to be more expensive versus something that you can get in on relatively cheap and then knowing that they're going to print something down the road take it take better advantage of a really good example of this is renegade rallier 
that I jumped into under the pretext that they would put more lands or more permanents that would leave the battlefield on their own into the format with it, and I could not have possibly been more wrong, but I tried. Playability also trumps rarity, which is to say a card that sees more overall play will be worth more than one that doesn't. There are plenty of 25 cent mythics and $10 uncommons. And everything in between those two numbers. Don't, don't let that fault you. Obviously, a mythic that sees a lot of play is going to be stupid expensive. That's the whole point of a mythic being that, that high. Is to drive demand, which in turn drives box sales, which in turn lowers the amount of supply and circulation because people buy the singles. And that's how the secondary market works. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But... It's important to understand why. In the in the context of, you know, synergy cards or... If it's a synergy card that sees a ton of play, like the deck is really heavily played, versus a role player rare that just kind of sort of does a thing in a deck that doesn't really need it. You know, a, a can-tripping creature that's a $2 rare is probably going to be a lower value than a key piece in a deck that desperately needs that card to function. So where do you start if you're looking to get in? And the easiest place I can say to start, look at uncommon cards that will see play in older formats. Common and uncommon cards that will see play in older formats. Especially when they're legal and standard right now. Fatal Push was a $3 card in standard. I mean, it was really expensive at one point when it first dropped. Everybody bought them, and then a whole bunch of people sold out of them. And it got down to like three, two, three dollars. And then it goes up and down and up and down, depending on how much black decks are played in older formats. It's a really good card. Inquisition of Kozilek was very similar. In standard about to rotate. Sprite Dragon's another really good example. It was an uncommon, and you look at that card, and you're like, man, that thing with three spells is gross. Stormwing Entity was a $3 rare at release, and it's like a $10 rare now. Expressive Iteration is way better the more cheap spells you can play, and you get a lot more cheap spells in older formats. So, uncommons or rares with eternal implications where the price at release is going to be relatively low. And I'm doing this now on the eve of the Innistrad Midnight Hunt release because of exactly this. We're about to see cards release and the prices are going to fluctuate. And there's going to be something that slips through the cracks. So I think it's really important to keep an eye out and make sure we don't miss. Pre-orders with surprisingly low prices. We already touched on that with the Lyra example. But it happens every time. Lands that complete existing cycles that have eternal implications. Shock lands are obviously always good buys because they, when they're in standard, their prices tank, and then once they rotate, they come back up. Or, well, at rotation, they tend to drop, and then they come back up on the other side of rotation. But... A really good example, the Fastlands in Kaladesh. Spire Bluff Canal was like a $6 land 
in standard. Now it's 25. So those are definite buy and hold type of lands. The pathways, I would wager, are going to be very similar. They are on balance $5 lands right now. So if you can get in on them low and then sit on them, I think they're going to go up over time. Maybe not in the next year, but they might go up in the next two or three. And then anything that looks like it's going to be a commander staple. You look at that card and you're like, man, that's a really good commander card. If it's cheap, just pick one up. It's not going to hurt you. You can always dump it later. And if it goes up, yay. And finally, a few guidelines. Do not invest more money than you're comfortable losing. This is a very important rule that I play by. Do not hinge your financial success on the price volatility of Magic cards. It's just not a good pro not a good program. It is not going to end well for you or for the game. Do not expect a quick return on investment. It very rarely happens that you get a card like a Sprite Dragon or an expressive iteration that drops and is double or triple the price that it dropped at within a year. That doesn't normally happen. Be comfortable playing whatever you get into just in case you can't get out of it. Especially with digital cards on Magic Online, that's a really good mantra to have. Don't get into anything you don't want to play. Because if you, you know, it's one, a really good way to help maximize your ROI because you are getting value from it while you're playing it. And then if it goes up to that unsustainable price point, you can get out of it and you get to keep both the profits you made between your initial investment and your move and any prizes you won playing the cards. Diversify the portfolio. Don't pin all your hopes on one card. You will get burned by it. Believe me, I know. And remember that this, at the end of the day, should always be secondary, if you are like me, to enjoying and playing the game of Magic. That is way more important, way better use of your time and effort than just trying to make as much money as possible off of it. Because at the end of the day, the game is the is the draw. If we wanted to make money, we wouldn't be playing Magic as a, as a general rule. But the ability to do so in a way that helps you keep Magic self-sustaining is a really good idea. So that's kind of my thoughts on how I view MTG Finance right now. It is something that I, I'm going to have to pay better attention to in the next year or so because of sort of everything that's going on in our personal lives, but it is not going to be something that takes away from my enjoyment of playing and, and learning and improving the game of Magic. It's really important to stress that. So with that in mind, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And we're going to see if I can't pull some of these up while we're, uh, while we're waiting. If you've got questions, you've got comments, you've got concerns, you can send them to me on Twitter, at HomewardPathMTG. You can send them to me on Facebook, in the group, the Homeward Pathfinders. Uh, if you're a patron, you're obviously in the Patron Pathfinders Discord. Uh, I'm also a member of the Heasy Game Media Discord. Uh, if you want to join the community on my local game store, Camden Cards is the sh is the shop. 
Uh, we'll hopefully get a chance to talk more about them in the in the future. And yeah, that's kind of all I've got for this episode. So let's get this pulled up. Hashtag MTG Dad Jokes. Let's go. Because I haven't done these in a while. Let's see if we got some built up. First of all, we have one from Brad. Why aren't the lists for food decks called recipes? I, a sad fact of the matter, Bradley, I know people who refer to every deck list as a deck recipe. Because, you know, other games have referred to them as that. But that's a good point. If I ever build another one, I think I'm going to have to. And then the the second one we got is from Luke Green, another patron of the show. This is my nephew. Well, that looks menacing. Me. Well, fortunately, there's two of us. Yeah, just block it out. It'll be fine. <laughs> Appreciate it, everybody. So, again, I, I end the show with some variation on this every episode. But... People are going through a lot right now. There's a lot of reasons to not be in a good place mentally. So when you're interacting with people, please lead with kindness. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So laugh hard, make smart financial decisions, but be kind. And we'll catch you next episode, everybody.